and welcome to Taxing Matters, your one-stop audio shop for all things tax, brought to you by RPC. My name is Alice Kemp, and I will be your guide as we explore the sometimes hostile and ever-changing landscape that is the world of tax law and tax disputes. Taxing Matters brings you a fortnightly roadmap to guide you and your business through this labyrinth. In case any of you miss any crucial information or just want some bedtime reading, there is a full transcript of this and indeed every episode of Taxing Matters on our website at www.rpc.co.uk forward slash taxing matters. Here to explain to us how the appeals process from an HMRC decision works is Costa Christoffi. Costa is a senior associate in RPC's tax dispute team, where he plays a key role in achieving settlement outcomes for major corporate clients and has conducted complex litigation before tribunals and higher courts. Costa has been described as extremely knowledgeable of regulations and precedents. In addition to all of that, and possibly because of his attention to detail, Costa is an amazing cook, and I've been dying of envy at the photographs of his creations that his household got to enjoy during lockdown. Costa, welcome to Taxing Matters. Hi, great to be here. So, what kinds of decisions are we talking about as a baseline that are appealable decisions? So ordinarily, you're looking at conclusions stated in closure notices, which come um, at the end of an HMRC inquiry, um, or alternatively assessments to tax, which um, are not uh, self-including a self-assessment. So you're looking at discovery assessments principally. So those are the, are the two main substantive things you're going to be appealing. Uh, other things you can appeal are um, things like requests for information issued under Schedule Clause 6, which I think you've covered in a previous uh, podcast. Um, there are other things which aren't appealable, but applications you can make include things like um, applying for a closure notice and things like whether or not um, the revenue are agreeing to postpone collection of tax whilst the appeal is pending, although those um, latter uh, applications are increasingly rare because the revenue ordinarily do um, accept the postponement applications. So if those are the kinds of decisions which are appealable, are there any kinds of decisions which aren't appealable? Yes, I mean, ordinarily you need to look at the statute to uh, decipher if it's something which is appealable, but things which generally aren't appealable, things which the statute does not confer a right of appeal for are things which give the revenue um, discretion to do. Um, there are the classic type of thing which taxpayers will be familiar with now is, is things like um, accelerated payment notices, follower notices, um, so these anti-avoidance tools which, which require payment of the tax up front pending the appeal. The only way to challenge those sorts of decisions is through um, judicial review, which again, I think you've covered on a previous podcast. So what are your options if you don't like a decision which has been made and does have a right of appeal? Well, your option is to um, appeal it in the first instance to HMRC. Typically, you have 30 days to do that, but it's always best to just to double check the type of decision you're appealing and what the statute says. The revenue will then consider the appeal and render its conclusions. You then have um, the opportunity to uh, accept or request a review, um, and that is conducted by HMRC, but by an officer which is unconnected to the original appeal. And you have 30 days to request that review, and the revenue um, will have 45 days to conduct that review, unless that that time frame is extended by agreement between the parties. Um, Then again, um, if you're dissatisfied with the outcome of the review, 
you have 30 days to appeal to the independent tax tribunal. And I'm going on the basis that this is all direct tax. It's obviously very similar for that, but um, there are some more nuances for indirect tax. You've just talked about the, the distinction between a review and appeal. Why might a taxpayer want to select a review over going straight for an appeal? To be honest, in a lot of cases, a review isn't worthwhile, in my opinion. Um, it really depends on the decision that you've appealed. I think if it's something like um, a penalty, I think reviews can be quite useful because the revenue generally have a bit more leeway whether or not to uh, apply a penalty. And it's, it's based on, in the first instance, on the subjective views of, of the officer imposing the penalty. Um, so having an independent view on that from an unconnected officer can be useful. And I think the stats show that for penalties, reviews um, are significantly more useful than for other types of tax decision. You've talked about a couple of different time limits for appeals. Are there any other time limits that are generally applicable to your decision-making process? 30 days from the date of the decision in question is is the kind of um, default one in, in, in most cases. The only other one which is important is the JR deadline, which I think you've covered on a previous podcast, but just to reiterate, it's three months from the date of the decision as a long stop, but the claim must be otherwise be brought promptly. Um, There's obviously case law on when claims should have been brought promptly. So obviously 30 days is a very tight time frame. What happens if you miss it? Um, So if you miss the deadline to appeal to HMRC, they can accept a late appeal and basically have to do that if you have a reasonable excuse and that you've notified um, or you've asked for permission to appeal out of time uh, without reasonable delay after the excuse ceased. If they refuse, you can ask the tribunal to give you that permission. Likewise, on a review, if you've missed a review request deadline, that can have quite draconian effects because if the revenue offer a review and you don't accept within time, the matter is deemed determined in favour of HMRC and final. Uh, In that case, you can't ask the revenue to give you permission to appeal out of time, but you can ask the tribunal um, and the factors that they will consider and whether or not you should be given permission will be very similar, if not the same, to the factors that they will apply in determining whether you should be given permission to appeal late as opposed to whether or not you should be given permission to appeal after the review deadline has been missed. So what are the factors that the tribunal will take into account in assessing this? Invariably, it's, it's an overall balancing exercise. I mean, the, the kind of three-stage test is to establish first the length of delay and whether it was serious. Um, the second is to establish the reason why. And third is to conduct an overall evaluative exercise. And I think really the main kind of factor in all this is the prima facie case that the taxpayer has in the substance of its appeal. So in other words, if a taxpayer can show in its grounds of appeal, which will go in at the time it's making its request for permission to appeal late, that its underlying case is very strong. And I won't, I won't come up with an, an example of, of that, but you can all imagine these types of very strong cases. The tribunal is almost you know, going to go out of its way, I think, to give you permission to appeal late, because otherwise it would be unfair and unjust not to do so. Um, But as ever, it's a balancing exercise, so there will be, on the other hand, prejudice to the revenue if um, there's been significant delay and they've treated the matter as settled. So assume that you've filed your appeal and you did it in time. What happens next? If you filed your appeal with the tribunal, what will happen next is they will categorise the appeal 
um, on a track, either basic, standard, or complex, in particularly standard and complex. And then you, the, the operative difference between the categorizations of that in complex cases, the costs regime will be deemed to apply. Um, and that means that, uh, as in ordinary litigation, the winning party will be able to recover their reasonable costs in the appeal from the unsuccessful party. However, the taxpayer does have the opportunity to opt out um, of that cost regime and the taxpayer only, the HMRC cannot opt out of it. So in other words, if you're on the complex track and you think you have a very strong case, then you can um, be within the costs regime. Once you've allocated it to a particular track, what happens next? So once the case has been allocated, the tribunal will issue directions um, and this is effectively the roadmap to take the appeal forward through to a hearing. Um, a standard set of directions will um, proceed as follows. You'll be invited to exchange lists of documents. These are documents on which each part, party intends to rely on in the appeal. Um, you will then have to exchange witness evidence. So these will be your witness statements uh, and the witnesses of fact uh, that you intend to call and support your case. There will be cases, particularly complex cases, where expert evidence may be required. You can use expert evidence with the permission of the tribunal. Another factor, particularly in complex cases, that is particularly useful is you will be directed or you can be directed to agree a statement of facts. And that cuts down the number of facts which um, the tribunal needs to find um, and which are in dispute. Then you will be directed to provide your listing information and that is the information the tribunal needs, needs to list the hearing and then um, off you pop to the tribunal. Sounds incredibly straightforward. <laughs> so what do you actually need to do if you're a taxpayer preparing for a case? Well, the first thing you need to do is to um, make sure you're satisfied that your case is sound on the law. Um, uh, and depending on whether or not you're represented, that will involve a number of different things. But um, assuming that you think you have a strong legal case, you will need to decide what, uh, if any, evidence you need to marshal to support your case. And that invariably takes the most time in terms of preparing an appeal because just gathering documents, particularly if it's an, a historic case over um, you know, potentially a longer period of time or a long time ago, you need to gather everything you need together and you need to prepare your witness statements from yourself or the taxpayer potentially and potentially third parties who can um, you know, give corroborating evidence. Um, and um, again, it all depends on what type of decision and tax you're appealing particularly at first instance, where the first year tribunal will find facts. Um, you need to get that part of your case absolutely right. Uh, you, you can appeal points of law if you think the tribune, first year tribunal has made an error of law, but facts that are found at first instance are particularly difficult to overturn on appeal. So what kind of evidence do you need to be thinking about collecting specifically in order to be able to rely on it at hearing? You've talked about sort of witness statements. Where do you need to look? Um, I think it really depends on on, on the case, um, but what, what you need to do um, just on witness statements, if you're talking about witnesses of fact, they merely need to put down in writing their recollection and understanding of events. Um, it's there to give a narrative. It's not there to give opinion. It's not there to argue the case. Importantly, it, it should be a, where possible, a dispassionate 
uh, note on the facts. Um, and that can be from anywhere, really, provided it's, it's, it's relevant. Um, and, and the tribunal, I should say, is informal. That's codified in its, in its rules. Um, so the scope of and type of evidence the tribunal can hear is, is actually broader than, than an ordinary litigation in, in England and Wales. And what about if you have documents that you think are going to be helpful that are actually held by HMRC? Is there any way for you to get hold of those documents as part of your evidence? Yes, this is relevant in cases like um, discovery cases or potentially penalty cases where the revenue uh, bear the burden of proof or at least the initial burden of proof and they have to satisfy uh, the tribunal or make a positive case that their assessments or penalties are good. So cases where the taxpayer needs to know what the revenue officer, for example, was thinking and doing. Uh, so if you think about those types of cases, the revenue potentially might talk about systems and processes they had in place, what internal discussions they were having um, about points of law. If you're thinking of discovery, for example, where the revenue often say they've made a discovery because they've changed the way they've thought about the law. And in particular, concepts of staleness, which is a still a hot topic. That's the time difference between the revenue making the discovery of an underassessment and them issuing the assessment to the taxpayer. So that, that type of factual evidence that the revenue will hold is critical. And in those cases, you can obviously ask cases. You can ask HMRC for those documents voluntarily. And if they refuse to disclose them, you can make an application to the tribunal. And um, they can direct HMRC to disclose those documents to you. And there is obviously case law and guidance on, on, on when they should do that. Um, uh, it, it, it will attach to whether or not it is fair and just to do so. So assume that we've got to the tribunal and the hearing is now being conducted. How is that hearing held? Is it in public or private? Um, it, it will be a public hearing um, unless the tribunal directs that the hearing should be held in private. And without going into too much detail on that, it will ordinarily be an uphill task to convince the tribunal to hold the hearing in private because open justice is a very powerful principle which runs through even the tribunal system. So you should always proceed on the basis that if you're, if you're going ahead with a hearing, you will get a published decision that will have your name on it and people will be able to see what you've been arguing over. I think previously this was more of an issue for taxpayers because they were concerned that having their name up in lights, I don't want to overstate the position because I don't think people trawl through tax decisions um, unless you're a tax freak like me. But nowadays, I, I, I think um, it's less of an issue because clearly there are umpteen technical disputes on the law, which taxpayers and HMRC can very honestly become tangled up in and they need to be resolved by an independent impartial tribunal. You talked earlier about the consequences for costs and the differences between the complex track and other tracks. What are the ongoing cost implications? So the general rule in FDT litigation is that it's a no-cost jurisdiction. So in other words, um, each party bears their costs in the appeal irrespective of the outcome. However, as, as I said earlier, if you're in the complex track and you haven't opted out, then the losing party ordinarily will be liable for the winning party's costs. So that can have the advantage to the taxpayer if they do have a strong case and they want to seek costs at the end of it. Is that right? That's right. So what can you do if you get a decision from the tribunal that you don't agree with? Is there a further right of appeal? Yes. Um, so you must seek permission from the first year tribunal to appeal its decision um, to the upper tribunal, which is the next step. 
if it doesn't grant you permission, you can ask the Epitribunal tribunal itself to give you permission to appear. And you have 56 days from the first tier tribunal's decision to ask for permission to appeal. You can appeal points of law to the upper tribunal. You cannot appeal facts, although the caveat there is that there's a principle established in Edwards and Burstow, which is that um, if the tribunal has misdirected itself on the law in finding the facts, then that will amount to an error of law, and those facts can effectively be challenged and appealed. Also, if the tribunal has been found effectively to have found facts which no reasonable and objective tribunal could have found, then those facts will also be appealable. Um, and I think it's interesting to see how this phenomenon, if I can call it that, is being treated in the upper tribunal, because I do think they are overturning primary facts um, with increasing frequency. So I think that principle has been somewhat diluted in the last couple of years. So has there been any impact from the coronavirus and lockdown on the tribunal hearings? Yes, I think it's fair to say there was an initial kind of jolt, um, as I think happened everywhere when the kind of lockdown hit, because all all hearings effectively were vacated and uh, up to the summer, I think. Um, And then how they have been slowly relisted um, over um, video uh, hearing technology, which obviously has its inherent uh, problems, but on the whole, I think in the circumstances has been has been fine. It's worked worked pretty well, um, and I think the tribunal is going to proceed to list hearings remotely for the remainder of this year, with a view to dual listing them going forward. So that is where they will say we're happy to list it in person, provided uh, you know the government guidance etc. means that we can conduct the hearings in person safely. But if we can't, be ready to to conduct your hearing. Uh, via, I don't want to say Skype because it's not always Skype, uh, via video link. So what's your own personal experience been of uh, conducting these hearings via video link? Um, it, it was fine, obviously not 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 uh, as good as face-to-face, um, but, you know, it, it was conducted smoothly, some technical faults here and there, um, as you'd expect. Um but we, you know, I think they're making, you know, doing a good job out of a very, a very bad situation. Thank you very much, Costa, for taking us through the appeal rights. As ever, a big thank you goes to our miracle working producer, Mary Mitchell, Josh McDonald, who does all the work pulling this together, and our music is from musical genius Andrew Waterson. And of course, a big thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. A full transcript of this episode together with our references can be found on our website, www.rpc.co.uk forward slash taxing matters. If you have any questions for me or for Costa, please email us on taxingmatters at rpc.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. If you like this episode, please do take a moment to rate, review and subscribe. And remember to tell a colleague about us. Thank you all for listening and talk to you again in two weeks. 